I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This week, we're taking a special look at how the events of 9-11 shaped communities. Over the next few months, we'll hear reflections from leaders and scholars from different sectors and parts of the country for their points of view. Earlier, we heard Dahlia Magahid, how her plans to become a consumer market researcher in the private sector shifted into a very public role, one she felt called to serve. We now widen the lens with Dr. Sylvia chan Malik. She's a distinguished American Studies scholar currently teaching at Rutgers University, who, like Dahlia, deepened the public's understanding of Muslims and Islam in the United States. Her research focuses on the lives of U.S. Muslim women and the rise of anti-Muslim racism in the 20th and 21st century. In 2018, NYU Press published her first book, Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam. Dr. Chan Malik begins by reflecting on a positive change since 9-11. I've been thinking a lot about the conflicting legacies of 9-11, because on the one hand, it's very easy, especially as a scholar, to really see the negatives um, all of the time. But one thing that I've noticed over and over is that while a lot of the stereotypes, the tropes, the narratives that we see about Islam and Muslims um, have not shifted that much, what has shifted is the incredible engagement of U.S. Muslim communities within the public sphere, within activism and organizing, within cultural and artistic expressions in a way that was unprecedented prior to 9-11. And so you've really seen, and I've really observed, a real sense of engagement and investment in taking a hold of a narrative from films to music to culture to politics to activism to organizing to scholarship. Um, And I think that's a really, really positive development. When I'm thinking about the larger question of what it means to be an American Muslim, a U.S. Muslim, I start with this, the fact that Muslims have been present in this country for centuries. Muslims arrived in large numbers with enslaved Africans 400 years ago. They created communities and presence amongst enslaved peoples. There was a resurgence of Islam in African-American communities in the early 20th century. Uh, We're very familiar with figures such as Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad and Muhammad Ali. And then subsequently hip hop artists, you know, who kind of are connected to those types of figures. Prior to 9-11, what happened was that you had this narrative of African-American Muslims. You have new communities that are arriving, immigrant communities from the Middle East, from South Asia, from all different parts of the world. And you have communities that are very separate in lots of ways. And none of those communities prior to 9-11 really interacted with each other. There was an African-American mosque, a predominantly South Asian one, an Arab-American one. And what 9-11 did was it raised this question of who is a Muslim in the United States? Who are you? What is this community? And it really forced Muslims themselves who had been in these, you know, different communities, you know, linguistic, cultural, racial, ethnic backgrounds to really try to talk to each other 
for maybe the first time. 9-11 was a catalyst for that, for Muslims from all different backgrounds coming together to figure out what does it mean for all of us to organize and create an identity that reflects our own histories and diversity and vibrancy across all these different spaces. And in the last 20 years, that has really been what we've been seeing. And it's a very new conversation in that way. And we're really still seeing it play out on the ground every single day. One of the anecdotes that I like to use when I teach or when I speak is that if you were the child of immigrants, perhaps a South Asian in Edison, New Jersey, which is close to where I live, where there's a large population of Muslims on September 10th, <laughs> 2001, you know, your life changed really drastically from September 10th to September 11th. And what shifted was not sort of the internal contours of your life. You know, you still went to the same school, your family, everything, you know, that stayed the same. That was a constant. What was different was how everyone was looking at you and how you were perceived and how all of a sudden what shifted in that moment was how you were understood after 9-11 with the surveillance and the very clear anti-Muslim rhetoric that was playing out and the hate crimes on the rise. There was a way in which consciousness and awareness of these types of racialized discourses really, really became far more pronounced amongst Muslims themselves who had perhaps not thought about these things. 9-11 forced race to be very forcefully at the center of the conversation and how we are going to craft a Muslim identity moving forward. And how that's played out is that it's caused some quite painful conversations amongst Muslims themselves. You know, a lot of the really interesting advocacy work that I'm involved in or that I watch very closely is about thinking about anti-Blackness. In Muslim communities, you have groups like Muslim ARC, Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, Muslim Wellness Foundation, different groups like that, really thinking about how are we as Muslims going to talk about these issues amongst ourselves when at the same time we are collectively a racialized group. And so it leads to these types of very complicated and nuanced and difficult conversations. These are the types of dynamics that I see playing out. And moving forward, I think these conversations are going to happen for some time to come, both in how Muslims are looked at as a racialized group and how race and issues of racism occur within Muslim communities. The stereotypes around Islam and Muslims and the way we've come to imagine them in this country is that Muslims don't operate in the same logical universe that other religious faiths do, like Christians. We understand that there's a plurality of opinions and understandings and interpretations of Christian doctrine within the Christian community. We understand that there's a range of the ways that Judaism is practiced amongst Jewish communities. For some reason, when it comes to Islam and Muslims, there is this overlying idea that 1.8 billion Muslims worldwide somehow are so beholden to their holy texts and ideology that they all think in lockstep. This is the result, as I said, of the constrictions that these long-standing stereotypes around 
Islam and Muslims and connected mostly to the Middle East. And I always want to point out the vast majority of Muslims in the world are not in the Middle East or what is called the Arab world. The vast majority of them live outside of that region. We really have to kind of remember that and put that into the analysis when we say things like, or when we hear things like American Taliban. As someone who studies Muslims in the United States, I am often surprised every time I am reminded of the fact that Muslims make up about 1.3% of the American population. I'm surprised by this fact because the amount of space that Islam and Muslims take up in the media landscape and the threat that Muslims within the United States somehow seem to pose to the American public is so disproportionate with the actual number of Muslims that actually lives in this country. So while on the one hand, most Americans might say, I don't really know a Muslim, but they are extremely familiar with all the stereotypes all the negative connotations of being Muslim, all the you know images of terrorists and women in burqas, everyone is familiar with that. I think we have to be extremely critical of that media landscape. Women's bodies have always been sites of political struggle, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in Saudi Arabia. You see the ways in which anxieties, desires, you know, debates, divisions become projected onto bodies of women. And the U.S. is no different. You can say the same with histories of African-American women or indigenous native women or immigrant women. But in the case of Muslim women, first of all, the percentage of Muslim women that cover their hair, so quote unquote, appear as visibly Muslim, it's about give or take about 50%. There are practicing Muslim women who do not cover their hair in public, but who cover their hair to pray. There are all different kind of variations of how you cover. Some women might cover their hair in a way in which their neck is not covered. So they might not seem as visibly Muslim. However, Across all Muslim women, whether they're covered or not covered, I haven't yet to encounter in my research and my teaching and my talks around the country, one Muslim woman in the United States since 9-11 who has not felt that she is the target of some sort of potential violence as she's walking through the world. me is it's really horrifying. <laughs> you know, that's a really disturbing fact. Women who are expressing their faith are also carrying around a fear. Again, the difference between race and religion is that for Muslim women, Islam is also supposed to be a space of solace, a space of safety, a space of comfort. I absolutely see 
a new generation of young Muslim women in so many of the social justice organizations. It's women who are at the helm of these organizations. They are the ones who are out there doing the work, raising money, talking to people. I mean, two of the most well-known Muslims in public life right now are Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, the two representatives. And so you see the ways in which women, Muslim women, have become the face of engagement and activism in a lot of ways. And this is definitely holding true for the younger generation, this generation that has grown up and, and knows nothing else except this America in which the war on terror is a constant reality. And I, I would like to add, too, that young women, young Muslim women are not just dealing with the everyday uh, exhaustion of racialization at school, in their jobs, when they turn on the TV, etc. But there's also been a lot of coming to terms with issues of sexism and misogyny within Muslim communities. There have been organizations that have come up to address issues of domestic violence in Muslim communities, of spiritual abuse, of women's access to prayer in mosques. And young women are connecting all of these different spaces, access to their religious practice, to social justice, to issues you know, of equity and education and beyond, up to Black Lives Matter, to immigration reform. And you see all of this coming together in really exciting ways. James Baldwin says, I have to be hopeful because I'm alive. And I also have three daughters. So I am so cautious and concerned and fearful at times about the future. But I also see incredible possibilities that did not exist. So what I see looking forward is that there's so much to deal with. But I always come back to this statement that a student of mine said in a class on Islam in America. We were reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, and students are always just blown away by how different Malcolm X is from what they've heard. And so this young man was reading this book, and he said, Malcolm X was thinking about so many incredible things. He was thinking about organizing on an international level and, you know, kind of the UN and dealing with anti-Blackness as a transnational issue, a human rights issue. He said, if we could just not have to deal with rejecting and countering stereotypes all the time and just get to the work of changing the world, we could really make a difference. And what I find exciting is that there's less concern with just trying to reject stereotypes and say, oh, no, Muslims aren't this. We're going to Paul. We're so sorry. We condemn this act of terrorism. There was so much of that after 9-11. But now you see young people saying, you know what, we're going to start an anti-racist coalition between Muslims and this group and this group. And we're just going to do that. We're not going to spend time, you know, talking about what Muslims are and Muslims are. We're going to do the work.
Dr. Sylvia Chan-Mullock is a scholar of American studies, critical race and ethnic studies, women and gender studies, and religious studies. She's a professor at Rutgers University, where her research focuses on the history of Islam in the United States. And she's the author of Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color and American Islam, published by NYU Press in 2018. That's all for this week's episode. Our producer this week is Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Interfaith Voices programming is made possible by the generous contributions of our donors. To learn more about us, please visit interfaithradio.org. Sign up for our newsletter, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to the podcast. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I hope to see you next week.